This morning, if you could sing, the Lord called and I ran out of the grave and do it like this. He called, I ran out of the grave. I kind of scanned to my left to look. I'm not going to call any names, but I mean, folks, that's pitiful. I'm just telling you like it is. I got a little reverb, Zach. I don't know if it's from this one or, um, but anyway, shame on you. You know, the scripture says in John 10, which I'm going to take a little break uh, after I do prayer one more time next Sunday at Daniel, we're going to take a little break leading up to Easter. And so on the 22nd, we're going to talk about the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. Do you know that Jesus is the gatekeeper? And the Bible says that he calls his sheep by name. They know him and he will bring all his sheep, his sheep, remind you, into his fold. So I want to remind you when he calls you and you come out of the grave, you ought to be excited. He's a doorkeeper. He knows his sheep by name. That's personal. So if you've been saved, it's personal. Amen. All right. That's another sermon. Okay. (laughs) Daniel chapter 9. Let's pick up down in verse 14. I almost feel guilty for not reading all of it again. It's such an incredible prayer. But for the sake of time, the three points we want to bring out today that concludes those seven that you have in your bulletin. Uh, We're going to do three today in Daniel's prayer. The Bible says, beginning in verse 14 of Daniel 9, Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins And for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O God, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant. And to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear to hear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Listen to the crescendo of petition specifically. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called By your name. David McIntyre's book, The Hidden Life of Prayer, many of you have asked about it. Some of you have ordered it. But here's what he says in that prayer book, book on prayer. In the morning, we should look forward to the duties of the day. Now, we all get up in the morning, don't we? We should look forward to the duties of the day. We should anticipate those situations where temptation lurks and We should prepare ourselves to embrace such opportunities for usefulness for the Lord as they're presented to us during the day. That's a good prayer, isn't it? But it doesn't end there. In the evening, we ought to remark upon the great providences of our God which have befallen us. 
Y'all do know God is in control. I hope you believe that. And secondly, he says, consider our attainment in holiness. How are you doing with the holiness thing? Consider that attainment in holiness. And endeavor to profit by the lessons which God has given us to learn during that day. And then he says this, and always we must acknowledge and forsake sin. Then there are numberless or numberless themes of prayer which our desires are for the good estate of this church, the church of God, for the conversion and sanctification of our friends and our acquaintances, for the furtherance of our missionary efforts, and for the coming of the kingdom of Christ and all that that suggests. All this cannot, he says, be pressed into just a few moments. And this statement is so key. We must be at leisure when we are in the secret place. Now, I don't know about you, but most of the time I think leisure is sitting in my chair, watching a game or hanging out with the family, and we consider that leisure. But David McIntyre's point is you can't really engage God in prayer unless it is in leisure. We're, so, we're, we're everywhere. We're scattered. We're running to and fro. And uh, may it be in our own lives that our leisure ends up being the times that we focus on the master. Are you getting this? Some of you are looking at me kind of dumbfounded because in the United States of America, we think leisure means party. But leisure for the saints of old, <laughs> leisure for people of prayer takes that one hour that, that quiet hour before the Lord, that quiet place, that quiet heart before God. I, I hated to burst your bubble on the introduction of the sermon, but all of us feel like we could get under that pew right now, right? Go ahead and try it. I've done it. You can get under there. You can fit. I promise you. My heart feels it just as much as yours. So we're in Daniel's prayer. And there are so many things in that opening uh, introduction of things that we ought to pray for that are just laced in Daniel's prayer. They, it, it just, it's all through it. So the last three we're going to see is that first, prayer is marked by confession of sin and repentance. Now, would you consider Daniel a righteous man? Y'all would? Well, listen to what Ezekiel says. Verse 19 of chapter 14. Or if I send a pestilence into the land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah... Daniel and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither their son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their own righteousness. Now, that's interesting in a lot of ways, because God says, I'm about to send judgment, and I don't care if Noah and Job and Daniel were here or not, you're going to get judged. Their daughters and their sons will be judged. But it, it, it is interesting that Ezekiel says, Daniel's a righteous man. Correct? So we'd all have to agree that yes, here's a righteous man. But I want to remind you that Daniel as a righteous man does something that is righteous. And what is that? We identify that we're sinners. Are y'all awake? Yes? Somebody please go. Mm -hmm. Something. Okay? You got to help me preach this sermon. Just don't. All right? You're not just a spectator. You got to participate. Right? To get the word. To get it. So just think about that. We, we don't actually think at times that to be righteous means that we identify with sinners. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, you are a sinner. So the righteous thing that we do is that we put ourselves. I told you last week that Daniel 
per se, is really not guilty of the burden they're bearing because he didn't leave his covenant faithfulness to God. But all the people did, and yet he associates and identifies himself as a sinner. He realizes that he's made of the same stuff. And I know some of you first Baptist people aren't made up of the same stuff. You're just elite, right? Well, you're not. You're made up of the same stuff, and Daniel realizes that. So he's confessing corporate and national sins to God. And he does so, not separating himself from it, but saying, I'm all in because I'm a sinner. In the terms that are used here for prayer, you got to be overwhelmed with the usage of we, right? He keeps considering that, and he piles up these terms about Judah's sin. Concerning that truth, Brian Chapel says... Daniel confesses the reality of his sin and the people's sin because he's been called to carry their burden and his own, and his own, even though he didn't cause the burden. He feels the responsibility because he loves the people. He feels the care that he needs for the people. An old Puritan, and if you don't read Puritan theology, you should, Thomas Manton said, Confession is the vomit of the soul. What seemed pleasant in the ingesting is loathsome, in the injecting. Wasn't that true? Shouldn't our hearts feel that way when we know that we've grieved the heart of a covenant faithful God and we come before Him in confession and repentance? So the prayer as a whole is really a prayer of confession. If you start reading through, we brought out the four first characteristics. I get that. But as a whole, when you read through this prayer, the first thing you think about is confession of sin and the need for repentance. Let's just consider for a moment the terms used to describe Israel's sins and Judah's sins. Listen to this. In verse 5 alone, sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned away. In verse 6, not listened. Verse 7, disloyalty. Verse 8, public shame and sinned. Verse 9, rebelled. Verse 10, not obeyed. Verse 11, broken your law, turned away, refusing to obey, and sinned. Verse 13, iniquities. Verse 14, not obeyed. Uh, verse 15, sinned and acted wickedly. So Daniel seems like a, a prosecution attorney, doesn't he? And he's laid that case out. But re remember, every time he lays it out, it's because of the great name of God that's been offended. Even when he gets to the end of the prayer, he doesn't say, forgive us for our own sake. He says, restore all this for your own name's sake. So it's the name that they bear that is vitally important. So, Daniel acknowledges his nation's exile is just and right. Look at verse 14 again. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. Why? Because the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done and we have not obeyed his voice. So, Israel's public shame is deserved. Correct? What they are getting... Uh, they've disrespected the awe-inspiring, great, and mighty God who keeps His gracious covenant. And yet, shame on God's people, shame on God's city uh, is the righteous reward, right? For the fact that they've invited it upon themselves. So Daniel even seems to be saying, even after we've sinned against God and done all these loathsome things, Daniel seems to be indicating that the people are still at the place where they haven't repented. And, and that's scary, what should be our response if, if those accusations are given to us? And I want to remind you that you're guilty of about every one of those sins in some way or form. Such, some form. What should be our response? Oh God, guilty as charged. 
But that wasn't often Israel and Judah's response. That wasn't their response at all. Andrew Murray said, the one thing that God hates is sin. Can we all agree with that? It grieves and provokes him. And he ultimately will destroy it. The one thing that makes man unhappy in the end is sin. The one thing which Jesus had to give his blood for was sin. In all the communication between God and the sinner, sin is the first thing that the sinner must bring to God. When we go to our God, we must confess. In other words, we must be confessing confessors and repenting repenters. That is the truth given to us in the Word of God. We should always be that way. Now, some of us, because of the hardness of our hearts, we don't ever want to acknowledge that we're wrong. We refuse to acknowledge the fact that we are guilty before God, and thus we are rarely willing to say to someone else, I've sinned against you, will you forgive me? Why? Because we don't sense any guilt before God at all. But I want to remind you, if you cannot ask for forgiveness, it's because you don't understand the magnitude of your own sinfulness. And you don't understand the holiness of God. And that's a bad position to be in. We need to stop making excuses. We need to stop shifting the blame. Again, uh, Daniel links himself in corporate solidarity with the people. We have sinned. We have done these things. The more you do those two things of shifting the blame and not taking responsibility, uh, it, it begins to snowball with more impunity every time. It does. So if you don't have the scripture reference set to memory, this particular one, you ought to. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins. Do, do y'all have that one in your memory bank? I'm telling you, you better. Because you will always be a confessing confessor and a repenting, uh, repenting repenter. Always. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David McIntyre says, Confession of sin is the very first act of an awakened sinner. Well, that's good, isn't it? I mean, when you're awakened, when you're a sheep, when you're in the fold... The very first thing, very first response of grace is that you've now become a confessing person because you're awakened to who God is. When God desires a habitation to dwell in, He prepares a broken and contrite heart. But we speak now rather of the confession of sin, which is by those who are already justified, having been found in acceptance in Christ. Though we are all children, guess what? We're sinners still. That's what McIntyre says. And if they walk in the light, they're conscious. But I want to remind you that in your unregenerate state, you never were conscious to the turpitude of your guilt before God and the hatefulness of iniquity. In other words, folks, when you are saved and regenerated and born again, then you are conscious of sin. The Bible says in 1 John, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But I want to remind you that you cannot even be awakened to that reality unless you're born again. Right? This happens because of the Lord's work. And when you get to that point in life and you're truly saved, then you agree with David that it's God's countenance that you sense in your life and you sense, well, here it is. David says, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you might be justified when you speak and clear when you judge. 
we, we come to understand that God is righteous. And we come to understand that we are sinners. But when the light has been turned on, in your, when you have God open the eyes of your heart, which is synonymous with being regenerated, when that happens in your heart and life, then you view sin in a different way. Now in the Bible, confession of sin is explicit. Do you all agree? And I also believe that the care of Christian living is for particulars. The great promise of the New Testament is absolutely definite. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. So that's important. A wise old writer once said, A child of God will confess sin in particular, but an unsound Christian will confess sin by wholesale. He will acknowledge that he's a sinner in general, whereas David does not do that. David says, Against thee only have I sinned. And he doesn't say, I've done evil. He says, I've done this evil. In other words, he takes his... I cut my finger yesterday. It's my wife's fault. I was doing work for her. But here's what David does. <laughs> David says, right there is the sore. Are y'all listening? I mean, we love this Baptist praying. Forgive us for all our sins. Amen. Well, did you commit all of them at one time? Did the Holy Spirit only tell you that you sinned at the end of the day? How quickly in the countenance and presence of God are you reminded that you've sinned against God? If you're saved, folks, I'm telling you, if you're saved, it ought to be immediate. You ought to be able to say, this sore. Here it is, right here. And that's what God does if you're saved. He points that out. So you're a confessing confessor. Right? That's what you're doing if you're saved. There are times when, when you're praying that God will bring back up in your spirit sins that you've already you committed them and God has forgiven you for it. But your conscience sometimes would grab back to those sins. Anybody ever there? Yes, that happens. In such cases, I think the Lord is teaching us how that we ought to fresh and anew implore Him for pardoning grace. Every single day. Now, I want to remind you of something. You're not, if you're saved, you're not going to bend one day before the judgment seat of divine law. Because if you do, you're lost forever. Don't you love that verse? Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. Man, that's good stuff. Christ is the end of the law. I, I need to preach a sermon just on that one verse. Christ is the end of the law. But what, who you will bow before is your Father to whom you've been reconciled to Him by Christ Jesus. So for all of us, if you're saved today, we're confessing confessors and we are repenting repenters. Y'all got that one? That's the first one. Number two, prayer will be specific and earnest in its petitions. Now, did Daniel say, Lord God, bless all the Jews in the world and all the pagans. Amen. Is that the way he prayed? Now, I'm not saying there can't be general sweeping prayers because to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done is a sweeping prayer. And Jesus actually in the model prayer said we should pray that way. Uh, if not wrong to pray for all the missionaries in the world right now, this moment, who are suffering persecution. I think that's a great prayer. So, but notice in this prayer... When Daniel is before the throne of grace, he's compelled to ask for specific petitions. Verse 16, 
O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from the city of Jerusalem. Your holy hill because of our sins, for our iniquities. Do you notice that he is praying specific petitions to his God? John Newton wrote, You're coming to a king with large petitions. With you bring for his you are coming to a king and large petitions with you bring for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much we need to be specific in our petitions before god i think when we're praying biblically we are asking god to do things that are impossible by man is that not true we're asking our god to do what we cannot do uh, Daniel is asking God to restore the glory of his name. We can't do that. Only God can do that. We are asking God to do what we cannot do. You're coming to a God of which it is said in scriptures, things that are impossible through man are possible through God. God can actually do it. So Daniel's prayer begins to build. I said this earlier as he begins to ask more in his prayer and his meditation over petitions. Make your face shine. Verse 17. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes. See the desolation and devastation on the ones who bear your name. Man, what a prayer. God, restore the glory of your name because we're awful sinners and we're not living like we should. But your name deserves more. So do it for your name's sake. Lord, we appeal to your abundant compassion. Verse 18. And then reaching that crescendo effect, he cries out in verse 19. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Listen, do not delay, do it for your own sake, for we are undeserving. Lord, do it for your own sake. Do it because it will bring glory to your name and show the nations just who you are. That's good praying, isn't it? But we like to think it's about us. And we're just walking into the convenience store and we're sitting in, or the mall, and we're sitting in Santa Claus's lap and we're just at, that's not the kind of prayer you have here. Daniel prays, Lord, restore your name and your reputation. And do it for your name's sake. There was a man who lived years ago, and they called him Archbishop Layton. And he summed up prayer by this way. Well, this is a good way for us to think about prayer. Remember always that you are in the presence of God when you pray. Rejoice always in the will of God over your life. And thirdly, direct all the glory to God. Isn't that a good way to pray? Is Daniel not doing that? That's exactly what he's doing. I am in your presence, O God. I submit myself to your will, and I want you to do it for your name's sake. And that's for God's glory. So prayer is made up of confession and repentance. It is specific and earnest in its petitions. And finally, prayer is a part of the plan of God. Over the years, I've been asked this re repeated question. If God is sovereign, then why pray? Do we need to establish that God is sovereign? One verse is all you need. Job 42.2 I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Is that pretty clear? When God decrees something, there's an impossibility here. And that impossibility is it will not happen. Right? When God decrees, His purpose cannot be thwarted. Now, you have to wrestle with that in many avenues of life, whether that's soteriologically or uh, just the everyday things of life. But when God makes a decree, Job gives us testimony 
that God's purpose cannot be thwarted. Does everybody agree with what the text says? If you say amen, you better believe it, right? That's what the text says to us. That his purposes will come to light. Now there are a couple of ways I could answer that question. Why pray if God is sovereign? I could give you the duh response. And the duh response is God has commanded us to pray. And if God only commanded his servant, doulos, bondservant, to pray, then I would pray no matter what. Because it says so in the word of God. It's what we should do. The truth is, again, if he says pray, that's good enough. Now, God never says to us, I want you to sit around long enough to figure out my divine sovereignty and your human responsibility in all this before you pray. Does it say that? No. What I want to remind you of, being nice and not saying duh, is to say to you, prayer is part of the plan of God. If you're a student of the Word and you read your Bible, you will notice clearly that God is sovereign, but we are asked to pray, but God uses the prayers of the saints together with His sovereign decreed will. That's the clear understanding of the Bible. Revelation 8, we are told that there's this big censer. And it's filled with the prayers of the saints. And then we actually have a time when it reaches a certain level that the censer is hurled down to the earth. And all the series of decreed events begin to happen. When you pray, folks, it's part of the plan of God. That's an awesome picture in Revelation chapter 8. I believe that God has ordained all things to come to pass. I'm stupid enough to believe if God says that no plans of His will be thwarted, then that's the truth of the matter. Call it foolishness, whatever you want to call it. I just believe my God is sovereign, and if the Bible says that, that's a promise I have to take to the bank. I don't believe that 90% of the things will be worked out. I believe 100% will be done according to His decreed will. That's my stance. Never going to change it. As a matter of fact, Romans, listen to this, chapter 11. Amazing. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Kind of a life verse. Romans eleven thirty six. 36. Well, let's read verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Mm. Why does God refuse any kind of repayment? And then the fact that you can't pay him at all? Well, here's a reason. I'm glad you asked. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. God is in debt to no man. In verse 35, why is God not in debt to any man? Because of him. That means everything originates with God. Right? Through him. That means everything flows through God. And to him. That means everything that's done, ever decreed, is for God. And that's why we mess up so often in the United States thinking salvation is all about us. What about the Savior? He's the one who's the great shepherd that came. But we put the emphasis on self. And we don't put the emphasis on for, from, him, and through him, and to him are all, alas, all things. He loans us what we need to praise him. Y'all get that, don't you? Because he accepts nothing short of perfect praise. So he's loaning to you praise. He's given you the raw materials.
to give back to him. That's how awesome our God is. And God will be glorified throughout all eternity. And then the the writer Paul says, so let it be. Amen. So let it be. I hope we understand this and can see that prayer. Jonathan Edwards said it best. Prayer is the nerve that moves the hand of God. And it is God who sets his people to praying. Now think, think about it, folks. If you are a, uh, if you're a, well, let's go back to point one of, of this sermon. Prayer flows out of a vibrant faith and a close walk with God. Why is it the people of God, why is it that we don't agree with God and pray for his will because we're not walking with him? But for those of you who are walking with him, he's going to impress upon your heart what that prayer needs to be in light of the fact that he's going to work his decreed will. Acts chapter 8. Philip is just kind of hanging out and here's an entourage coming, the Ethiopian eunuch, out of Jerusalem because he's a pagan yet he's gone up to worship. And, and lo and behold, what is he carrying in the chariot? A scroll of Isaiah. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And he says, how can I know what this is about if someone doesn't tell me? Oh, don't ever say that to a preacher, right? And he begins to share the gospel. What is that? That's the awesome sovereignty of God bringing together a sinner and someone who's willing to share the gospel. Divine sovereignty. Human responsibility. Here's the deal. We need to make sure that our obedience is in sync with the sovereignty of God. That you're in touch with the spirit of God. Because this is the way our God works. When we go to our God, we're not going to, to, to inform him of anything. He's not hired you this week as a consultant. I know we're vain enough to think that. We are vain enough to think that if God would have just checked with us last week, then the coronavirus will be gone this week. I mean, we're vain enough to think, Lord, if you would have checked with me, I could run this country a whole lot better than you could. Now, don't I, trust me. We see it on TV all the time, don't we? Now, most of these people are lost. I get that. But the fact is, when we pray, we're laying hold of the God who can do absolutely anything He pleases. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, on the face of the earth, our God does whatever pleases Him. Here's the God you're dealing with. When we pray, we're laying hold of the God who can do absolutely anything he pleases. So this prayer is reflective, biblically, of a godly prayer. Why? Because it's filled with the character of our God. It's filled with his attributes. It's filled with the scripture. It is the scripture that prompts Daniel to begin to pray to begin with. Think about all those references. First and second Kings, Chronicles, Psalms, uh, Deuteronomy. All of those cross-references, that's what's happening in his life. God promises, God's promises are what motivate Daniel. Even the promise that if you don't turn, you're going to be judged. I mean, that's not a good promise for us. But folks, God is righteous in all his ways. And he's going to do exactly what he said he was going to do, and that motivates him. The prayer is filled with confession. It appeals to God to do what only God can do. And the prayer is in sync with the sovereignty and providence and plan of God. Folks, is there anything too difficult for God? No, there's not. Is there anything too difficult for our God? Anything too challenging for Him? Is there anything outside of the reach of our God? I think our God delights in the humble petitions of His people. And that's what you see from Daniel. Daniel. 
And I want to remind you that we come to Him through the blood and righteousness of the Son of God or we don't come at all. You understand when you pray that you could never approach Him apart from Jesus? I don't know if this is a word or not. Approachability, maybe? Is that a word? I think so. You can't approach Him. You have no access apart from Jesus. So you ought to thank Him for the blood of the Lamb. The access that we enjoy. The advocacy on our behalf that we can come before Him. We go to Him sometimes and we say, God, save our kids. Don't we? We know that only God saves. And we put it before Him. God, save our kids. I know there's some and even in our midst in the last couple of weeks, you pray this. God, give me a job. We, we trust the sovereignty of God. We cry out to Him. God, bring healing in a particular relationship. Have you cried out to Him recently about that one? God, please act on my behalf. Act on behalf of your people. He does not answer always precisely the way we think He should. Again, we like to be His consultant, right? But we can rest assured that He hears the prayers of His people. Why? Because your prayers have been bought by the Son of God and His blood. That's what the Bible teaches. So here's the concluding part. In light of the greatness and grandeur of our God, I want you to think, that the, I want you to think about the fact that the greatest motivation to pray is really the cross. Isn't it not? And what Jesus actually did for His people on the cross. Based upon His work in saving us. The Bible teaches us that God has a plan for us. And it's called holiness. Is that not what's flowing out of Daniel's life? He desires an attainment of, of holiness before God, not because living a certain way saves him, but because he's already been redeemed. He has this desire in his heart for an attainment of God working more and more and more in his heart and in his life. Do you know that God has promised to sanctify his church? If he has, then guess what he'll do? He will do it. God has actually promised to sanctify you and me. He's promised us. Listen to the Bible, Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Did I read that word? I know I get, I get smacked around and called out for actually giving out a biblical word sometime, but I want you to underscore that word in the Bible. The preacher didn't make it up. Y'all okay with that? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Don't you love it? Folks, those he foreknew, he also predestined, check it out, to be conformed to the image of his Son. God's already determined that you are going to be walking in this process of holiness. And one of these days, when you see Jesus face to face, you will be like him, for you shall see him as he is. That, that's happening in your life. And Daniel realized this. All of this praying has to do with the fact that we bear your name and we have a desire to be conformed as much as we can this side of heaven. And I want to remind you that Romans 8 goes on to say those he called, uh, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. God has promised if you're saved, even your glorification is past tense. Isn't that amazing? What's that mean? Glorification means that one day you will see him as he is and you shall be like him. Not a little Jesus, but that means you'll be without sin. I look forward to that day. That's the attainment. That's what he's doing. So how should we pray? We should pray, God, there's wandering sheep all out there. You say you're going to bring them into your fold. Now, God, I've got neighbors that don't know you. And I've got family members that don't know you. So I'm going to pray because you are the sovereign God of the universe and you've told us to pray. Right? 
Should we pray about our own sanctification? We shouldn't? Yeah, I think we should, David. We should pray about our own sanctification. Why? Because the Bible says, uh, some of you young people need to look at this one. We're having fun, aren't we? Are y'all having fun? All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 4. Here's what the Bible says in verse 3. Should we pray about our own sanctification for the sanctifications of others? I mean, just think about how awesome that would be if we came to church thinking, I don't know what my brother and sister are struggling with today, but I need to pray for their sanctification. Look at the word. For this is the will of God, verse 3 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, your sanctification. Did y'all see that? This is the will of God, your sanctification. He goes on to explain what that looks like. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Wow. Why? That each one of you know how to control his or her own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The personal attainment for, for holiness comes because you are saved. Right? We don't live like those who don't know God. So we should pray for sanctification. Uh, how about our families? Well, instead of criticizing and gossiping, we need to pray. We do. And our church is a family, right? Say, Father, when it's a brother and sister that you're struggling with, this is your child. Right? Uh, my preacher used to tell me, uh, when you're brokenhearted and you know sin is in your own life or sin is in somebody, someone else's life and the relationship is going south, just tell God. Right? It's that simple. We should be praying for one another. I know sanctification is the will of God, so help my brother. Help my sister. And lest you think you're super spiritual, your sin may not be their sin, but you've got them. Right? So we, we look inwardly. Please work on my heart. Please allow your spirit to mold me. Husbands should pray for their wives in this way, even when they sin. And some of you are thinking, you husbands, you Neanderthal, you sin way more than I do. Back up. Husbands, you need to pray for your wives when they sin against you. And wives, you need to pray for your husbands when they sin against you. How about children? When your, pa when your family, when your parents exasperate you. You know, the scripture says that, right? It says... Uh, do not be harsh with them. Really, the terminology is, you know how sap boils up in a tree as the temperatures go up in spring? And, you know, leaves get pushed off the tree. They don't necessarily die. The sap pushes. Oh, am I giving you a horticulture, right? Here's the deal. Children, I'm, parents, don't exasperate your children. That means don't let that sap in the tree just boil out and push the leaves off. Well, children, when we do that to you, what you ought to do is pray for us. Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, not just your parents. Well, what happens when it's vice versa? And the children are absolutely rebellious, yet they claim to know Christ. What's the best thing we can do? We can pray for their sanctification. Why? Because it's the will of God. And we say, God, just bank the fire out of them. <laughs> right? That's what we want to happen. I hope you're getting this. We pray based on the promises of our God. And I think our God delights in those prayers because we're giving back to Him what he's given us in his word. I think the common theme one day of our songs before the Lord is going to be something like amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And that God Almighty would save you for eternity is an awesome thing, isn't it? I'm glad when he said that he would save us for eternity that it's nothing short of eternity.
right? God is so good to do that. All right, let's pray. Father, I know we've talked about a lot, and there's so many things that we've contemplated, uh, but Lord, help us to be praying people. Father, my prayer at the beginning of this for my own life was God use this as a catalyst for my own life. And Father, not only a catalyst for me, but for the people I pastor. Father, help us. We are prone to wonder. Lord, we feel it. We're prone to leave the God we love. Take our hearts and seal them to your throne above. Help us, Lord, in that area. Help us to be a praying people, a praying church. Help us focus our attention on the sovereign God of the universe who controls all things. We can take it to the bank. We know that you are faithful, that your promises are sure. God, help us to, to begin to pray your promises across our church family for one another. We are a family that's living life under the word. I know we have emotions. I know we have our own thoughts of what we think things mean and what they say. But Father, may your word be our guide. May it be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.